When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are never going back to a pre-pandemic world. That's the key message from Jim Bianco in this interview with Rao. To cap off our Best of 2022 series, we're bringing you this can't-miss discussion in which Jim Bianco argues that inflation is here to stay and explains why the U.S. economy will never look the same way it did before the COVID-19 pandemic. Jim Bianco, how the devil are you? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you, Ral? I'm great, my friend. Listen, are we going to make it or are we going to break it? That's the big question we need to figure out here. Where do you lie? Oh, I think we're going to break it. I think <laughs> we're going to break inflation and there's going to be collateral damage along the way. And I think the Fed has made it very clear that they're okay with collateral damage. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, during the press conference, Mike McKee of Bloomberg said, you guys are projecting 4.4% inflation for next year. That's the new updated dot chart from the Fed. Back of the envelope calculation means a million and a half people are going to lose their job. And Paul just looked at him like, yeah, and your question is. So they're ready to break things. You know, he wasn't phased by the idea that he was just being accused of causing one and a half million people to lose their job. No, and let's dig into all of that, why we've got here, what it all means and what it's, what's going to happen, because there's a lot to unpack in this. And there's a lot of, you know, you and I've got some differences of opinions of all of this. I think we both think we're going into a recession. It's just, you know, what right. are the outcomes, stuff like that. So how do we get here? How do we get here with the night from your read of things? How do we get here to this 9% inflation and this mess? What, what happened? Well, I think there's two things that have happened. Um, I do think that the general argument that this is part of a surge from the pandemic reopening is true, that you have some of that going on. But I also think that there's been a secular change. Every pandemic produces a change in the economy coming out of it. And typically the change is it speeds up the cycles. So what's happening to this economy is basically what was going to happen. It's just coming on us a lot faster. The, the three things that I've argued is we've seen the end of the era of cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy, cheap labor. Last week, there was a, on Wednesday, there was a uh, Greg Ipp article in the Wall Street Journal, which I think summed it up best. He, it was about this idea about the great resignation leading into quiet quitting there's a sociological change in people's attitudes about work. It's not as important to them anymore. They're there to collect the paycheck. And if the job is unpleasant, they'll just quit. How do they live? Not very well, but they're okay with that. And so we've seen this idea that people will work hard, accept whatever they can to keep labor cheap. That era might be over. Cheap goods, that's China. China, the, the, the political uh, problems we're having with China 
are leading up to the idea that we passed the chips bill. We're putting sanctions on them. We're trying to bring semiconductors back. The president is giving maybe intentional gaffes or maybe unintentional gaffes that he will commit U.S. troops to China, uh, to Taiwan, to basically stick it in their eye as well, too. I don't see how we go back to everything's okay. Just keep filling the shelves of Walmart with cheap stuff, cheap uh, cheap energy. That's Russia. Russia has been supplying Europe with cheap energy. Remember that in manufacturing, most important input is energy. It's not labor, it's energy. And all that cheap natural gas that was, that was basically powering the Mercedes plants in Stuttgart and the BMW plants in Munich and all the other manufacturing in between, all of that has now been thrown up in the air. Is there a scenario out there where we kiss and make up with Vlad and he opens up the spigots and we go back to rock bottom gas prices? I guess in theory there is, but I don't think it's a very likely outcome. So this is what I think has changed. So while the pandemic did lead to a surge of inflation, what I'm more concerned about is when it comes back down, it doesn't come back down to 2%. It comes back down to some number that's higher than two, three, four, four and a half, maybe five. And interest rates are going to have to respond in kind by saying much, much higher for much, much longer. So... Just to frame this, are you thinking this is the 70s again? Is there a past episode that we should look at so we can contextualize how you're thinking about this? Yeah, I'd say World War II, the end of World War II. Okay, as as do I as well. Right. And there's a big difference, but September 45, the war ended. We knew at that moment that there was a major change that occurred in the economy. And we started to transition from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. Interestingly, October 45, the payroll report showed 1.9 million people lost their jobs, which was the largest monthly loss until the pandemic in March of 2020. And that was a good thing because that was we were laying off people from making tanks and fighter planes. We didn't need them anymore. Um, So as we transitioned to the new economy, we first got 20% inflation in 46, 47, which was the highest inflation rate of the 20th century. It was not 1980. It was not 1946, 47, and a recession. And then we had a recovery into the late 40s, early 50s. We had another recession. About four or five years apart, we had another surge of inflation, which wasn't as high as the 46 one. That set up the boom for the 1950s into the 1960s. I think we're in a period of epic change now, like we were after the war. The big difference is in 1947, if you asked people, they understood we were in a new era. They weren't asking for their job back making Sherman tanks. We were done with that era. But in 2022, there is a question as to whether or not this is a different post, as I call it, a post-pandemic economy. And people are saying, wait for the return to normal, which is wait till 2019 comes back. The two biggest proponents of that might be Jamie Dimon and Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs, which are trying to get everybody back into the office five days a week and insisting that, don't worry, in about two years, Manhattan will look exactly like it did in 2018 and 2019, not recognizing that currently only 9% of the Manhattan workforce is full-time, 5-0 in the office. The rest is partial or fully remote. Only 9% go to the office five days a week. 
And I think we have to start thinking at least at one level, the five days in the office, not five, not less than working five days a week, but five days in the office might already be a thing in the past because we are changing this economy. So 2022, the big difference is people want to argue whether or not there's a change in the economy. 1947, we knew it was different and we were going about restructuring the economy. We still have to restructure this one, but we can't start it until we agree that it needs to be restructured. Okay, so this is fascinating because we're both using the same parallels. What I look at is inflation went negative in 47, 46, right, 18 months later because of the mm -hmm. mathematical effects and, you know, as supply chains settled down. Then, as you say, inflation comes back, the echo inflation, because you still haven't sold all the supply chains. Rates, I don't think, went back up then. How, how, how do you think about what they'll do with rates? Because I would suggest, you know, my view is headline inflation goes negative again. Whether that's right or not, who knows, right? Core inflation is probably stickier for some of the reasons I think you've pointed out. Um, then it's the next boom we have to worry about. So I can, I'm struggling to think that we end up with structurally high inflation, but I can see that we could end up breaking out finally and staying out of the chart of truth, you know, the, the falling yield. So next time around, maybe interest rates have to go up again, but maybe not as high as this cycle. How are you thinking through that double, that period and what it does? Right. So I should add um, as an addendum to my other comment that there is one thing that we still have that does hold down inflation, and that is technological change, and that that is a deflationary force. But I don't think it's enough to offset the loss of cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy. It's not, it's but it enough, will, but it fast, is an offset. But not fast enough. You know, because you look at right. how long does it take to build a Tesla Gigafactory? Yeah, there's no people there. I did a, uh, I wrote a piece recently that you would have found interesting, which was a demographic, um, robots are the new demographics. So, you know, Amazon has built or employed 500,000 robots. They've got one and a half million employees. Those robots are three times as productive because they work 24 seven, 365 and are never ill. So they've basically got a robot population that, uh, workforce that's about the same size as its own, as the, as the human population. But that stuff takes time. You know, we can't instantly turn on the robots. That's part of the restructuring that I was referring to. So if right now, where's the cheap, you know, if the cheap labor is coming from the United States with the work ethic, the worth ethic might be changing. If the cheap goods are coming from China and people are working 14 hour days in Guangdong, where are we going to find cheap labor and where are we going to find cheap goods? Robotics might be the answer. But as you point out, it isn't going to be the second week in November, we're going to have all the robotics in place that's going to be able to offset this. That's many years down the line, but that's how we eventually get back to very low, very stable inflation. To your earlier question about whether or not we could actually see a big dive in inflation, say, into 23, 24, sure, if we break the economy bad enough, if we have a recession, you could definitely see that. Take a look at freight rates. Take a look at shipping container rates that are plunging right now. I think a lot of people are misreading that. They keep saying, well, see, that's the supply chain getting better. No, that's the global recession is what that is. You've got a plunge in, in container rates because FedEx told you 
that the economies of the world are slowing down. Other than Japan, you've got this synchronized rate hike and you've been really squeezing everything. And so you're seeing deflation come in in container rates. And I think that you might see that. You could definitely see that with the plunge of inflation. And then you're right. We then start to ease. We start to boost the economy. We get the echo afterwards and we get the echo inflation. But bear in mind, what I'm talking about is I still think 9% inflation might have been the high. Um, I think core might still sneak out a new high, maybe even this month, but not much higher than the 6.5% peak that it had in March. But I'm more worried that if we were to settle out at 3 or 4% inflation, that that means then that interest rates have to you know, settle out neutral is somewhere around 3. It's no longer 0. And that is a big adjustment for financial markets. I have to deal with 0 or 3% inflation versus 0. So back in back then in the 40s, the answer was yield curve control, and they had negative real rates for a period of time, which I think we probably need to run the economy. I don't think we can get, I mean, we'll talk about how broken the economy is shortly, but we've had positive real rates at, you know, five-year break-evens of 100 basis points or whatever, and it looks like it's destroyed everything. I've got the trend rate at like negative one. So do you think we can, you know, Japan has been a great lead for most of this stuff. Yield curve control, they've done on and off for a while now. Let's say we go into that world. They know that the next bout of inflation is less transitory, more transitory, whatever that means. Um, And they say, okay, fine, we'll tighten into that. But what we won't do is we won't keep rates at 3%. We'll we'll run them at 1.5%, you know, with a yield curve control or 2%, let's say, yield curve control and then let regular inflation settle at 3%, because it's one of the ways of getting rid of the debt somehow. Another big difference between the 40s and now, and you could throw Japan in there, is the current economy is much more financialized. The debt levels are much, much higher than we saw after World War II. Now, to be specific, the debt levels were high because of the war, but private sector debt, that was government debt to finance the war, but private sector debt coming out of World War II was very, very low unlike it is right now. So when you did have a period of yield curve control, which you know culminated in the 1951 Treasury um, SEC uh, or, uh, or Treasury Fed Accord about um, interest rates and who actually controlled interest rates, because prior to that, the Treasury thought that they, they did monetary policy too, and they kind of settled that out in 1951. <laughs> but you did have yield curve control then, but you didn't have as financialized and hyper-financialized, as I would say, an economy like we do now. If you look at yield curve control in Japan, let's take, you know, let's take last week as an example. On Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, there was not one single trade of the 10-year JGB for two consecutive days for the first time since 1999. When you have yield curve control, and you've pegged the rate at the top end of the, of the range at 25 basis points, and you've made it sure it's never going to move off that number, the bond market goes away. It just sim- simply disappears. There's no reason for anybody to even show up and turn on a Bloomberg screen because there's nothing to do. The price is going to stay unchanged. That's the problem you face if you want to go with the yield curve control thing. If you go yield curve control and you start fixing the market, you're going to see brokerage firms close. You have fixed income brokerage firms close. What's the point of having one 
if these prices judge are fixed by the government and they never change. Yeah. My heart bleeds for them. <laughs> I, I know. I know your heart bleeds for them. My heart bleed. My heart doesn't bleed for them that much either until the moment that we actually need them. There is a reason that we have this whole ecosystem for the financial markets is to raise debt. And if you want to, what you're doing is you're not just blowing up a bunch of useless speculators, but you're actually dismantling your ability to raise debt. And I think Japan has done a great deal of that. Yeah, Japan, Japan finances itself through the post office and through the uh, Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan. But if there ever was a day that Japan needed to get real people to start buying JGBs again, that infrastructure is gone and it's been gone for quite a while. And Japan, it was always my argument with Japan is if Japan ends up owning all of its own bond market, the thing that takes the strain is the currency market because that's the only free asset. So, you know, if the Fed were to do the same, you basically have to devalue the dollar. Yeah, you know, I, I, I jokingly, uh, I'll give you a crypto analogy that I used to use. If, the, if Japan owns the whole bond market and fixes the bond market, their bond market eventually becomes a stable coin and the governance token is their currency. So you're right. You've, you, that's what we've seen this year. As worldwide interest rates move up and as Japan holds them steady at 25 basis points, something's got to give. It's the yen. That's what gives. And it's pushing 145 right now. And so you're seeing more of that. And so you're let's going play to continue that for a bit, because that's something I've been trying to think through. Let's say maybe yield curve control does come. Maybe, maybe not, right? The chances are the Japanese, the Europeans, and the US are doing it all at the same time. That is true. That if it does come, there is that fear that they're all going to do it at the same time. I might add, I, you know. Before we go down the rabbit hole of yield curve control, keep in mind Australia. They had yield curve control and they abandoned it last year and it spectacularly blew up in their face. They were trying to peg their three-year note, which is what their mortgages are tied to, to 10 basis points. It finally went to 17 basis points. They said, okay, we give no more yield curve control. And then like a week later, traded 70 basis points. Uh, and so when yield curve control blows up, it blows up in a big spectacular Yeah, you either have way. to do it like the Japanese or don't even try it. Right. You know, and that's the problem is that Japan, you're right. You know, people have asked, when is Japan going to give up yield curve control? And I kind of think, you know, they can't. They have no choice. They have a 220% debt to GDP level. We have 108 or 110 in the United States. They have, if they were to give rid of yield curve control, you could see the 10-year JGB go to 2% in a heartbeat, and then they can't afford it. The interest payments become geometrically more expensive, and it really then turns, you know, they call it the Keynesian aim point, when your debt costs are more than 100% of your revenues. Japan would be at risk of that if they got rid of yield curve control. So they've got no choice but to dig in, dig in hard, and try and just continue to do yield curve control. But to your previous question, what if we all tried to do that? Because the Europeans don't feel far away, right? Because they're pretty fucked right now with what's going on with energy prices. Core inflation is going to be high for a long time. They've got a real problem here. It kind of feels like they're going to have to go to yield curve control or they're going to lose control of the buns, which is their anchor. Well, the other thing they have to be careful of if they were to try to go to yield curve control um, and force interest rates down, and I know that they're kind of 
you know, um, you know, playing around on the edges with this, with this transmission protection instrument, the TPI, to try and prevent Italian rates from really skyrocketing relative to, to German rates. Um, if they were to go to that, especially now, what is the big problem that they have? They've got enormously high energy costs. And to be clear, they've got enough energy that everybody can be heated through the winter. That is not the issue. The issue is you got to pay 600% more on your energy bill this winter than last winter. That's the way a capitalist system works, right? You, you've got all the gas you want. It's just you got to pay for it. It's not that you've got all the gas you want at a low price. Now, if they go to yield curve control or do what Liz Truss is trying to do in the UK and, you know, trying to slash energy bills, they're just going to encourage demand. They're going to encourage people to continue to, to use that energy and somehow not pay that extra 600%. They're going to get more inflation is what they're going to wind up doing there if they're not careful. So they want to see demand reined in because they don't want to have to have, have that big burden of paying that 600% bill, uh, you know, pay less of it by using less. But if they go to yield curve control or they go to some other subsidy, they're not going to rein in that demand and they're going to wind up paying, you know, spending what? The estimates are, you know, 8 to 10% of GDP this winter just on heating. Uh, and that is going to be a gigantic drag on but the how economy. can they not do something? You know, it's pretty difficult as a politician. I get your argument is if you do too much, you can stabilise demand, but you can probably do enough that demand can fall at a reasonable pace and not utterly destroy the economy. I don't, what do you think? The only problem is they're not doing anything on the demand side. I've yet to see a a policy that is suggesting how we're going to get people to use less this winter. Yeah, you see the stories about firewood, you know, uh, people Googling firewood and stuff in Europe, but that's, uh, I don't think that's serious. First of all, about 95% of the homes in Europe, like in the United States, couldn't even heat themselves with fire. I can't hit myself, my home no. with firewood, uh, you know, unless I set my home on fire, uh, <laughs> but short, short of that. But uh, but the, the reality is what the, they seem to be wanting to talk about is trying to find some kind of version of a subsidy. UK is talking about a subsidy. They're talking about a price cap. A price cap is a demand cap. That's where we're going to all agree to not pay above a certain price for um, sky, high uh, sky high natural gas. Well, that only works if 100% of the people are agreeing with it. The Chinese and the Indians are not going to agree with that. They're going to pay whatever they need to pay to get whatever they need. And so the price cap will fall apart as soon as they try to implement it, which is why they're not. But I'm not hearing them putting on some kind of a, um, you know, uh, regulations on trying to, uh, you know, talk about this idea that we're going to regulate or slow down demand. You know, a good example to slow down demand, somebody suggested, was send everybody back to the office and tell them that, you know, you've got to, you've got to turn the heat down to 60 degrees between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And if you want to be warm, go back to the office where we can all huddle up and we can be a little bit more efficient in the way, instead of every single house staying at 68 or 70 degrees all day long. What about the idea long. that a, a bad recession is baked in the cake, so why not use rolling brownouts for industry? You know, ways where if you've got excess demand anyway, you might as well not create excess supply of goods, so you can, you can have rolling brownouts in certain ways. You know, these are, these are policies that governments talk about all the time, and they're all 
good in theory until they get in the execution stage. Once certain people get certain, you know, um, considerations that others don't get. Um, you know, the, the, this guy's a very good donor, so we won't brown out his factory. This guy voted for the wrong person, we'll brown out his factory twice. And that's what usually happens in the execution of something like that. But in theory, that is not a bad idea. But again, it's, it's just an idea on the fringes. It is late September. It is going to start getting cold there in 30 or 40 days. And they still don't seem to really have a real plan in place. Like I said, the, the gas is there. So you can get the gas to heat yourself. You just got to pay for it. You got to pay a gigantic number to get it. So, okay, so let's say companies pay some of that. The government subsidizes some of it, right? So, yes. Subsidy means more demand. It means demand doesn't go down if you subsidize it. Well, it does if you don't subsidize it fully. Because, like, I mean, look, PPI is 45%, for God's sake. I mean, we've never seen anything right. like this before, right? Yeah, these are numbers no one understands. No, and we don't know what this actually means. It's hard to make economic projections now in Europe. We've seen consumer confidence off a cliff, all of this stuff. So I'm, what's in my head is if I was given this set of circumstances, taking on board what you say, I'd give enough stimulus that people don't go bankrupt, but not enough that you stabilize demand. You kind of want a negative 3% GDP economy for, you know, the majority of 2022, 2023, and no worse than that, because if not, you end up with huge bloody problems anyway. I I kind of feel like the Europeans are always slow to get there, but they usually get there in the end. Yeah, um, that's true. And keep in mind too, when you talk about a recession, We did have an extraordinary thing happen in August, and that was the Bank of England predicted a recession that started in the fourth quarter all through 2023. As far as I could tell, I can't find another developed country central bank that has ever predicted a recession. It always is, there won't be one, there won't be one, it'll be a soft landing, and then the next words out of their mouth is, now it's over. Wait a minute, you never predicted it in the first place, but we'll never actually have a recession. It's either we're going to avoid it or when you have it, then they then they just start announcing it's over, it's over. But the Bank of England came out and said they're going to have a recession in 2023. So they're getting their population at least ready for it because they're openly talking about these kind of things. And that's where trust is having this kind of problem, too. She just becomes the prime minister um, shakes the queen's hand, then she dies. So it's not off to a good start for her. And then, uh, you know, they tell her, oh, and by the way, we're going to have a recession no matter what you do. And so she's been put in a very difficult spot. Uh, and therefore, I think you're right. When we start talking about what is it that Europe has got to do, they're probably going to have to accept that they're going to have higher unemployment. They're going to have lower standards of living. They're going to have to do something about you know, rolling brownouts or maybe mandatory periods where they're going to have to have the heat turned down quite a bit, either during the day, you ever go to an office to stay warmer at night, to use a couple more blankets or something along those lines. But right now, like I said, there really isn't, there's just discussion of that, but there really hasn't gotten anywhere on actually doing it. Because I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the winter of discontent in the UK in 1979. I was 11 years old and I was at primary school and what we would do would turn down the heating. We had to turn down the heating at schools 
And I would go around with a few of the kids turning it up so we'd run out of fuel so we'd get sent home early. I got caught doing it by teachers. But I remember that. I remember the rolling electricity blackouts. I remember all of that stuff. It, it was a pretty ugly time in the UK. It feels like Europe's going to have to go through that. Now, the winter of discontent, you know, eventually was the seeds of the political change with Margaret Thatcher and a whole bunch of things came out of it. Much like I think this is going to be a transition to green energy and will accelerate it because the Europeans have had the wake-up call. It's like, you better... They, they kind of understood this anyway, but now it's like, we might as well take the pain and try and make this transition as fast as we can. The other problem you got to keep in mind about, you know, if you have some version of a winter of discontent, again, with rolling blackouts and all these other disruptions is we do live in a just-in-time world, an integrated economy world. So, oh, they're going to have some rolling blackouts in Germany over there, you know, um, by the Rhine. And But I'm not over there, so it's okay until you find out that a third of your suppliers are now all messed up because of these rolling blackouts. So even though they might not affect you, they do affect you. And so it is. this would be enormously disruptive for um, European manufacturing and European business if they have to go through something like that, much more than we did, say, 50 years ago or 40 years ago. Um, so let's talk about the, how you see the economy over the next 12 to 24 months. What is your, what is your framework? Let's use the U S economy because it's easier. The, um, economy is going to continue to slow. The fed is going to continue to stay restricted. How fast is it going to slow? Cause my, my models and my expectations is really fucking fast, but yeah, not happening yet. What do you see? What do you think? You, you know, the, I would agree with you, and I understand what you're saying about that. It would be really fast. There's, <clears throat> And you're starting to see the beginnings of that with what's happening in housing. Housing is rolling over. You know, it was as late as May of this year. The housing market in the U.S. was on fire. And now here we are in the late part of September, and it is not anymore. And it is in the process of rolling over. The only thing I would throw out at you is I would agree that it looks like fast, but the one market that does seem to be defying expectations is labor. It is not showing any signs or not really showing signs of weakening. We talk about it weakening. We just produced 300,000 jobs. Initial claims are not really, really rolling off. But I also think that part of that is this work from home is a symptom of a larger phenomenon as I mentioned before, between the great resignation and quiet quitting, there is a different type of attitude about work, a different type of attitude about the labor market, and it is not per per performing relative to the way that we think. And so we're still seeing large wage increases, you know, still over 5%. That could be the thing that throws the whole idea that the economy rolls over quickly into a question because normally at this point, we should be seeing serious signs that the labor market is slowing. In fact, I've even said it myself a lot. You know, when the Fed says that they're committed to reigning in inflation and they'll do whatever it takes. And as I said before, Mike McKee says, you're going to throw a million and a half people out of work. The reason Jay Powell doesn't get exercised about that is because it hasn't happened. But, you know, ask them after a million people have lost their jobs and there's people with placards outside the Fed complaining that they've lost their jobs, then ask them about it and you might get a different answer. We haven't begun, we haven't gotten to that point yet. And I'm surprised that we're not seeing any weakness in the labor market. And 
I continue to wonder if the labor market, like I said, every pandemic produces a change. People had a near death, a career near death experience in 2020. They lost their job. They got it back. They worked at home. Uh, they, they reassessed their life. They quit their job if they didn't like it. The great resignation. Now they're quiet quitting, which is I'm just going to do enough so that my paycheck keeps coming in and no more than that. So this labor market's very different than the ones we've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be interesting because we have to see that. As you rightly said, the Fed have made it very clear that, you know, it's pretty clear that inflation is going to come down to whatever level to wait. We'll wait and see. But so the final shoe to drop in all of this is the labor market. Um, one of the biggest drivers of the labor market is the housing market. And so the forward-looking stuff that I look at suggests that that could see accelerated job losses because there's been a lot of inventory. Yeah, I'm trying to think yes. where, where the big pockets of jobs are. There's the retailers, the Amazons of this world. Looks like they'll probably tip out some people. Maybe truck drivers, that kind of stuff. Don't know yet. But we need to look at that is where, where the structure of unemployment would come from. Because right. tech firms don't right. employ enough people, right? Right. You know, and keep in mind, too, as far as the change in the labor market goes, um, two weeks ago, we almost had a we almost had a train strike, a freight train strike in the United States. We've had other types of union actions, more union actions than we've seen. The port, the, the port workers, are the longshoremen in the West Coast are still without a contract. They're threatening a work stoppage if they don't get a contract. And you know what's interesting about all of this? The one thing that they all agreed on is the wage hikes. All the wage hikes have been agreed upon early on in all those processes. The longshoremen have agreed upon wage hikes weeks ago. That's not what they're discussing. They're discussing working conditions. They're discussing the whole idea about, uh, you know, how many days do I have to work? When do I get off? How many days to, can I do this? Or what are my hours here? You know, there's there's a big, the SEIU union that represents nursing home workers is trying to, they've agreed to wage increases weeks ago. They're arguing about how many patients per worker are we going to have at nursing homes and the like. So this is what we're starting to see a lot of in the market. And we're, and maybe this is where we're going to see the, the change in the labor market. So it's going to be very different. Also, I want to throw out one other thing, too, at you. You mentioned inventories at retailers. Um, if you look at the inventories at retailers, especially the big box retailers like the Walmarts and the Targets, you're getting a couple of mixed messages there. On the one hand, the inventories are bloating, but they're bloating for two reasons. Reason one, we all know, right? There's been somewhat of a slowdown in purchases. But part of the reason that there's been a slowdown in purchases is when we came out of Omicron in the spring, the retailers correctly said, here comes everybody back to the store. Okay, fill up the shelves. Fill it up with what? Same stuff we put on the shelves in 2019. And when everybody ran to the store, they didn't buy the stuff in the same proportions as 2019. Our consumption basket has changed. And what retailers are doing now is there are certain things that if they have them in excess and you go to return them, they just give you the money and you can keep the item. And you've never heard that before because everything's been turned over. So when I said, you know, we're having an argument as to whether or not there's been a change, I think the retailers have agreed. No, there has been a change and they're, they're really trying to figure out what are consumer tastes and preferences now? Because we're stuck with a bunch of stuff that we ordered that they don't want to buy anymore. And we've got other things that they want that we don't have. And so they're trying to sort all of this out. Again, it's all part of this post-pandemic economy. But again, the overarching theme on this is it is about the labor market. 
And it is about how, whether or not when or if the labor market turns south. Because if it continues to show this strength, then the idea that the economy trails off, I'm with you there, it might not because the labor market is defying what we understand as how it should work. So probabilistically in your head, do you think the labor market breaks or not? I, th I think eventually... It's going to break, but I think the leading indicator of that is going to be the JOLTS report. That's the report that, you know, job openings, labor turnover, and that's the, the number that Paul cites all the time, that there's 1.8 open jobs for every unemployed person in the country. And prior to the pandemic, if it even got close to one, that was but an extraordinary this, okay, number. Here's a question for you on that. Is this a function of people doing two jobs as well? Um, I don't know, you know if it's a that's function. a structural change we've seen en masse. I mean, I'm, I'm doing could, four jobs, and many people are doing multiple jobs all at the same time. Especially work from home. You can definitely do, you know, you could definitely do um, online. You could, you, can, you could juggle multiple jobs. There's a possibility that that might be the case. But I also think that it's, a, you know, keep in mind, too, that not every unemployed person is qualified for every open job. So a lot of these jobs have technical skills or geographic restrictions on those jobs that a lot of people won't take. And I think it's part of the finickiness of the American public, right? Half the jobs in America cannot be worked from home. You know, a surgeon can't be worked from home, a waitress can't be worked from home, a cop can't be worked from home. Uh, but, you know, people, they're, they're devaluing those jobs. They don't want them. Um, another person, part of those jobs are geographic. I need you to be in Tennessee or New York City or Los Angeles to do these jobs. I don't want to move. And so, there, so this is part of the reason why we've seen this backlog of jobs. But I do agree with Chairman Paul that I think what we're going to have to see is that ratio of number of open jobs to unemployed come down a lot before we start to see the labor market weaken. And that's going to come down because those open jobs disappear. I don't need these. I don't. I have this open job. All of a sudden now, I don't need anybody for it. And so the, the job opening disappears before we start laying off people. But right now, there's so many open jobs. It, and the Atlanta Fed wage tracker sh shows a record that you get something like a 2%, you get something like 6.8% wage growth if you switch your job, 4.9 or 5% wage growth if you don't switch your job. And that spread is the widest it's been in the history of that measure, which goes back 22 years. And that shows you that there is a premium to looking for a new job. So as long as that premium exists and as long as these open jobs exist, it's going to be hard to see the labor market roll over. But those open jobs, they can disappear real fast. They can go away real fast. Because all you got to do is just say, we're not hiring for it anymore. It's not like you actively have to fire somebody. Mm. So... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Your hunch is that the labor market rolls over maybe later, and do you think it takes much higher rates than here? Where's your kind of terminal rate in your head? I know everyone's playing with this all the time in their heads, but where do you think the terminal rate is? And as opposed to you using know, Fed funds, let's use two years because it's the market setting that rate. Where do you think that goes? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll use it that way. So 
the terminal rate, according to Fed funds, on the day we're recording, which is the day of the Fed meeting, hit 466. So call four and two thirds or something along those lines. Every rate cycle that we've had back to the 80s, when we've actually cared about the Fed funds rate, the two-year note goes above the ultimate target, uh, goes above the terminal rate. So the two-year note, which is just above 4%, as we're recording right now, like 403, um, when we sat down to start talking, will probably go to at least 466, if not higher, probably push close to 5%. I do think, though, I also think that at the same time, the yield curve will go to this like minus 100, I'm minus 125. It's at about minus 50, meaning that the 10-year note yield is 50 basis points alone. I, I was thinking that through just before we were chatting. I can't see that not happening now because the Fed have basically said, listen, we're going to be really slow cutting rates regardless of what happens because we're kind of scared of making a mistake. So that anchors the two-year wherever it gets to, whether it gets to the level you're talking about or whether it gets to 425, doesn't really matter because the 10 years is going to have to do all of the work on the economy. So it should massively invert the curve further. Well, I think eventually it will. But I think I think in, in the near term, the next few months, I'm thinking more of a parallel shift higher, that the two-year going up kind of drags up the 10-year because the curve's not ready to go to minus 100. Maybe when the labor market rolls over and there's a sign that we have a real recession, then you get that massive inversion in the curve. Uh, but for right now, what I'm afraid of is if we, you know, fast forward two or three weeks from now and there's a 420, 425, uh, 10 year, a two year note, you know, 20 ish basis points higher than it is now, you're looking at a 380, 10 year note um, because that will hold that minus 50 ish range. But I agree, later on in the later on in this year and into 23, when the economy starts showing real signs of weakness and those jobs disappear then the 10-year could really have a giant rally and you could have a massive inversion um, in the curve before the Fed actually turns tail and um, changes on rates. So that's kind of the way that I see rates. And yeah, those rates are going to hurt. They're going to be restrictive. We're already at over six on mortgage rates. That could easily push mortgage rates near seven or even higher. And that is going to really put a very big tattoo mark on the on the housing market with those kind of uh, mortgage rates. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't see it's possible, even with rates as they are, because it's been a huge rate of change of interest rates, how we're not going to have a nasty recession. As you say, maybe the speed at which we go into it could be variable because of the labor market. You know, let me let me throw one out to you about when you say not have a nasty recession, this brings up like a parallel argument that you've heard over the last couple of months. The first quarter was negative GDP. The second quarter was negative GDP. Atlanta Fed has now got the third quarter at three positive three tenths. And here we are near the end of the quarter again. Maybe the recession's already started. I think it's it just been I, slow. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, David Rosenberg's point too. was that because I was like, when are you going to get this two year recession? You know, my indicators say next year, kind of first half, we kind of bottom. He's like, we've already been in recession for nine months. I'm like, yeah, of course we have. That makes total sense. Yeah, and I agree I agree with that. I've been arguing that too. When people ask me, are we in recession? I, I like to jokingly say, yes, full stop, next question. But I also then go on to say, but it's a mild one for now. You know, for the first and second quarter, it was mild, but it will pick up steam later into this year and into next year. So Chairman Powell said, you know, if you want to break the back of inflation, 
you cannot you you have to do it at a cost and the cost is going to be a recession okay so we both agree on that let's just get your future expectations of rates and then we'll talk into other asset markets so okay we go into recession whatever we get negative 2 negative 3% gdp feels like a, that's about the magnitude of the kind of thing we're looking at so a decent decent recession um where do rates go because of the issues you said you don't think they come as low as right i i uh, let me give you a sh- short term and in this context through the end of the year okay. um longer term will be in the 23 Short term through the end of the year, one of the things I'm worried about is go back to my argument a minute ago. If 460 is the terminal rate for the funds rate, every cycle that we've had since the 80s, the two-year note will eventually get above that. Even if it's for a couple of days, even if it's a few basis points, it could be 100 basis points too. It will go at least to that point. Now throw in there another thing, and let's go into the plumbing of the financial markets. Liquidity in the bond market is terrible. Bloomberg has these various liquidity measures that they look at. It is as bad as it was in 2020. It is approaching the levels that we saw in the great financial crisis. So what does that mean for this context? The possibility of an overshoot is high because you've got the bond market having the worst total return year ever. Rates are going up. The Fed's going to be very aggressive. So what is the, what is the potential here? The bond market completely overshoots on the upside. Rates go way too high and then really hurt. And then you get a plummet on rates on the other side. Um, is Because then we've got the recession and we get the massively inverted yield curve and the whole nine yards. So what I'm afraid of for the short term, again, through the end of the year, is that we see this irrational move higher in bonds driven by the lack of liquidity and everybody routing on it. And don't... Also discount this idea that these the losses in the bond market, if you look at the Bloomberg aggregate, U.S. aggregate index, it's down 12%. And it's already late September. The worst year ever was down like 3%. The, the global aggregate index, because of the strong dollar, is down, is down 17%. The S&P is down 20. And, this, and the global bond market has already lost 17%. Um, You know, I talked to a bond manager who said to me, you know, if you would have told me a year ago, what would you that the bond market would lose 17 percent this year, the global aggregate index? I would have told them, you don't understand how the bond market works. It doesn't do that. Well, that's exactly what it's doing this year. So it's putting a lot of stress on the financial system that the bond market has got these kind of losses. So the risk of an overshoot is high. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that. But I, I did, you know back of a piece of paper maths and I've figured out that we've lost 40% of global GDP in asset prices between bonds and equities. And we it's don't know how incredible. much we're going to lose in real estate and GDP from just general growth. It's unbelievable the damage that's been done. And and if in and I still think that people are kind of in shock, especially people that use wealth managers. Wealth managers, I can tell you wealth managers are in shock because the 60-40 portfolio is completely exploding in their face. It's the everything lose portfolio, right? My stocks are down, my bonds are down, everything's down. Uh, unless I happen to had had the foresight a year ago to load my customer up in energy, but a year ago that looked like a reckless bet. No one did that um, at that point. So this is people are shocked. They they see these losses, but they're not ready to really let that sink in. If we get through, say, by the middle of next year, 
and we don't get a real recovery in both stocks and bonds together, I think you're going to start, people start thinking, my retirement has changed. My lifestyle has changed. Um, I'm now starting to think about purchases in ways that I wasn't thinking about before. We know the lower end is doing that because of inflation. The higher end has not been doing that. And there's been a lot, there's been a lot of offsets to that. Let me give you a fun statistic. Um, Redfin uh, looks at the average house price in the United States. Remember I said that the real estate market was red hot through May? The average home in the median home in the United States had increased in the year ending in May by $60,000. The average, the median income in the United States is $54,000. Through May, the average person owned a home, their home made them more money than their job. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we got quiet, quiet quitting as well. People, but that's all reversing. So when you throw in the 60-40 portfolio, everything's not working. Well, the one thing that everybody had until 90 days ago was, yeah, but look at what Redfin says my house is worth. So we're okay. Well, now if that starts going over the side as well too, you're going to start to see a lot of attitudes change and change real fast. Um, here's a question for you on that. Is what do baby boomers do here? Right, because if this market does not recover, you've got 76 million retirees or whatever the number is becoming as they keep retiring every day. Because next year is, I think, the record year peak retirement year. Yes. Peak boomers breach 70 or 75 or whatever. Um, what the hell do they do? Because they've just taken a massive haircut in their wealth. So keep in mind another fun stat. Peter Zion throws this one out a lot. Um 65 years ago was 1957. This is the year that more than half the baby boomers hit 65. This is the year that, in theory, more than half the baby boomers are at least eligible for retirement if we still believe 65 is the eligible year for, for retirement. So a lot of the baby boomers are in retirement, half, are at least at retirement age. And why is that important? Because I'd like to say, what is a bear market? Just to go off on another quick tangent. And I always say bear market is time because eventually a stock, you know, the stock markets over the last 50 years, 60 years, they seem to have an irregular uptrend. So if you're in your late 20s or your 30s, what do you do with your money? You, you buy stocks and you check them in 30 or 40 years when you're ready for retirement. And you'll be very happy. But if you're 65, do you have... You, you know, life expectancy's got you into the mid, let's, let's say the low 80s. So you got 17 years, 18 years. And if I told you, oh, we're going to have a standard bear market, it's going to 4,800 on the S&P, which we hit in January. Um, it might take five, seven, eight years before we exceed, we exceed that level again. That's half my expected life if I'm a baby boomer. I don't have five to eight years to wait for my wealth to recover to where it was in January. I'm not 35 anymore. So I think it's going to really impact the baby boomers quite a bit because a bear market is time. They don't have 10 years like we had in the 2000 peak um, with the stock market or the 2008 peak. The 2008 peak took eight years. The 2000 peak took about nine years before you've wound up coming my, back my to the old retired, time. My dad retired in 2001. Terrible timing. And right. seeing his retirement savings shrink because he put it in the stock market. I managed to get him into buns at 485 or something because he retired in Spain, uh, kind of saved his skin. But that, his his discretionary spending 
collapsed because he had two equations is I don't know how much you know my 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 savings have just halved in 2001 and my I don't know what my life expectancy is because even though you're told it's 82 the worst thing that could ever happen is you live to your 90 and you've run out of money or even worse for many people is oh I die at 82 my wife lives to 88 and she's bankrupt and on the streets because we don't have enough money, right? It really is a strong behavioural thing to stop spending. I wonder how these boomers are going to spend coming out of this. Well, that's the thing is that I think that, you know, right now they're in shock and right now they're still trying to process what's been happening. Um, you know, I, 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 I've always used the analogy once um, uh, a couple of years ago, I saw a guy get hit by a car. He was okay, but I was, it happened right in front of me. And I started thinking to myself, why didn't I yell, hey, look out? Because I was processing what I was looking at. I wasn't sure what was happening. And by the time I figured it out, it was over. And that's kind of where the boomers are right now with the stock market. They're, why don't you stop your spending? Why don't you alter your behavior? Why don't you do something? They're processing this. And as they continue to process this, the markets, I'm talking about the all year, the markets have been getting worse and worse. And I think the echo of that will probably come next year and the year after, unless we see some kind of 2020 type rebound in markets, but all that that would take a zero rate and money printing again. But if we don't get that, I think that you're going to see the boomers really cut back on a lot of what they're doing. So the trend the rate younger, of growth comes down over time, right, right? Right. The younger the younger cohorts, you know, my two oldest kids are 26 and 28. You know, shoot it in, buy crypto, buy stocks. Oh, but they're down. Yeah, but you know. I'm 50 years from retirement. We'll check check back with me in 40 years to see how that argument works. And I think they're right on that. But boomers don't have that luxury anymore. Um, okay, let's go back to this blow off top in in yields. From my work, I think it's already happening. This is. I, I would I, agree. It's a work in process right now. Yeah, and I'm I I think it's closer than you do. Who knows? I've been wrong for a while now, so you can discount me to zero right now. But uh, my. It looks broken, right? All the linkages between everything I've ever looked at, the bond market, this liquidity issue has become a problem because quantitative tightening and and low participation in the bond market equals unhinged rates. And as you say, the risk is we go even further. Um, let's Right. And to, be, and to be clear, remember, I'm talking about unhinging rates because of bad liquidity yeah. and quantitative tightening, and you wind up with an overshoot. And yeah. that's what I'm always what I'm always been worried about with, you know, this bad liquidity in the market, because that's usually what happens is that when you get the overshoot, you don't have all those players that are like, wave them in. Look at these prices. They don't they're not there anymore or they're they're incapacitated. If you want a good example of, of the overshoot, look at what's happening in the commodity markets. I mean, they've got crypto levels of volatility in some of those markets because a lot of the trading houses have been so impaired. Then we've seen wild moves. I mean, how many times in the last month have we seen crude oil move 5% a day? It doesn't even garner a headline anymore. I'm old enough to remember two years ago, they had a 5% move in crude oil. That was a big fucking deal. Now it's just Tuesday when it happens. And we just, we've grown accustomed to it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's a lot of capital impairment. Therefore, market maker liquidity, all of that stuff is, has disappeared. So let's go into 2023 now. So, okay. We're starting to see the labor market move. Inflation numbers are coming down. Where do rates go over the course of the year? 
Is it the long end does most of the lifting first and then the short end follows later? How, how are you thinking through that? And then we'll come into yeah, equities afterwards. I, 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 I'm going to say that I do think that, you know, congratulations, Fed, you've broken the back of inflation and there's a lot of collateral damage. And that's the nice way of saying that there's a recession. It shows up with the long end of the, the, long end of the curve plummeting. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, Raul. Let's assume that the Congress is divided in some level. The Republicans at least have the House. Maybe they have the Senate, but they at least have the House. Now the economy's on the downskids, but it's divided now. Um, do we get a big fiscal package coming out of a divided government like that? Or do we just get more rankering and arguing and finger pointing and everything and it's left to the central bank? Because if you get fiscal response, I don't think you need as much of a I, I agree. reaction. And out I agree. I can't. I've thought this through too. I I don't see an easy fiscal response because the last two years of the election cycle is all out war, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, and um, um, and this is what we're talking about with this recession. This is not the pandemic of 2020. Even though you had divided Congress then and you got a massive fiscal response, you also had everybody scared shitless it was the end of civilization, which is why they which is why they came together and passed the CARES Act and everything else. If this is more of a recession and we're going to all point figures and call it the Biden recession or the Republican recession, I, I fear that there's going to be no fiscal response, in which case it'll be up to the central bank to try and fill that gap. And they'll probably then start to move move aggressively after after everything is broken. Um, and then we'll see whether or not it works or whether or not it just produces more inflation as the echo inflation comes. Yeah, down. we can't we can't judge that yet. My just view is I think fair value of rates just based on the business cycle is about one and a half percent of 10 years. You know, that would be nothing wild considering. Let's wait and see. But, you know, I quite like the trade from here. Let's talk about breaking things. So we both think the economy is going to break, most likely. That's what I had a global macro investor roundtable here in May, and we were like, we were all talking about, okay, what is going to break? And there's no obvious breakages of the financial system. Yes, there's a liquidity and stuff like that. You're going to break a few emerging markets that have got too much dollar debts. But I didn't see anything internally, and we all argued that actually the thing that breaks is the US economy. You know, it's like a, a nice old school recession where. The consumer takes it on the chin. Retail spending goes down. You know, people get tipped out of their jobs. You know, this old school recession. Um, equity markets, where are they in all of this? Because I have sympathy for the view that people say, well, if you're going to have that recession, then people need to take earnings down. But when I look at the unbelievable negative sentiment. It's literally the worst I've seen in my 32-year career. I've never seen anything of this magnitude. The underweights, the, you know, how many people think earnings are going to come down. I'm like, who the hell's going to sell this? How are you thinking through equities? So let me push back on that. Is it really the worst you've seen? Or was that the spring of 2020? Was that the fall of 08? Because what I've argued is in a bear market, sentiment will go to suicidal levels. You know, is it Jonestown right now or is that still coming? See, I think if it's a bear, if it's a bull market, the sentiment is so overdone right now. 
But remember, on the upside, we also had the, uh, the inverse of this. Remember, that was FOMO and Tina, that everybody was telling you that you, you had to buy bonds. I had to buy stocks because of FOMO and Tina. So I would argue that if this is a bear market, I remember March of 2020. I remember, you know, October of 08, September of 08, the weekend of Lehman. People were legitimately worried that the end of civilization was coming in 2020. They were legitimately worried the stock market wasn't going to open. That's my, we're not there yet. But that's we're my not there point. yet. But that's my point. We don't have that factor at play. We don't have a pandemic or the complete breaking of the global financial system. So why should it go to that? The, the uh, B of A fund manager survey is actually worse than 2008, which kind of blows my mind. But the point being is if we're not going to have a systemic collapse situation, which is what the pandemic was because we shut down the global economy, or 2008 when we shut down the global financial system, why should it go any why should the market go lower then? Well, let me give you one nuance about the B of A survey. If you look at the internals of the survey, the underweight in European equities is every bit as bad as it was in March of 2020 or the weekend that Lehman failed. That's how much every, all those fund managers hate European equities. U.S. equities are slightly below neutral. So they're not in nearly as as you know as bearish on equities now again these are you know this is a global fund manager survey <clears throat> the strong dollar might also be pushing them towards us equities um you know and keeping them there but i still would argue that if this is a full blown bear market and if we are talking about an uber aggressive fed and we are talking about a big inflation problem that, yeah, I think that sentiment could get much, much worse before we eventually see a low. These are all subjective things. You know, um, how bad is too bad? Like I said, it depends on whether or not you think this is a bull market or bear market. Obviously, I think it's a bear market. We're already down 20% from the high. Um, and so if that is, I think it could get a lot worse. I mean, um, so we'll see where it goes. There's a lot of things out there. Um, the, 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 as we talked about earlier, the commodity markets are dysfunctional. There's no liquidity in the bond markets. Uh, you know, we're having the worst year ever in the bond market. We have a 40 year high of inflation. There's plenty of things that if equity investors want to start freaking out that the world is ending, that they've got them. They're just not ready to do that yet. When they do, that will be the true low. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I had, a. Uh, a, a very good customer of mine who made a, a lot of money in March of 2020. And uh, because it was right there near the low when the Fed was holding the emergency meetings and there was open talk that the stock market might have to shut down because we were having those down 10% days. He was buying. He was buying like crazy. And I asked him why. And he said, because either the market is going to recover because we've gotten it so overdone or, and then I'll make a lot of money or the whole system is going to collapse and it doesn't matter. At that point, I don't think we're at that point yet. We're not quite at that point in equities. And that's what I fear might still be coming, at least from a sentiment standpoint. Um, final question. The, the other thing that's out there that is a global problem and seems to be no resolve is the dollar. What do you think happens to the dollar in this period? Because if you're right and we do have this potential even further spike in rates, I mean, the DXY is at 120, right? Something like that. Yeah. What are they going to do about the dollar? Because yeah, we've talked about what they can do about bonds. It's not easy when you've got an indebted system. Here we've got 
how I figure it is the US is 25% of world GDP and 87% of all traders in dollars. And something, I don't know how much is a percentage of global debts. It's like 70% of global debts. It's like, what? how are you ever going to stop this dollar unless you have some plaza record, which is where my head was going when you and I were talking about a global rate cap or something. I don't know. They're going to have to do something here at some point. I Well, first of all, I agree with you that this is going to be a big problem because for now, and you saw this in 2020, the dollar is a risk asset, right? When everything hits the fan, step one, get myself into dollars. Step two, figure out what's going on. And that seems to be why this the dollar just has this enormous rally to it because everybody's so uncertain. You've got war, you've got um, you know inflation, you've got an energy crisis. Now you know if you want to throw in another dollar catalyst. Uh, the day we're recording, you know, Putin announced he's going to have a draft and mobilize three hundred thousand people. And if if uh, social media is correct, there's a mass exodus of young males out of Russia as fast as they can before they get drafted in the army. These are the kind of things that make you say, get all my assets into dollars, then let me figure out what's going on. And so the dollar continues to rally. That's Throw been the best the trade, really, hasn't it? That's been the best, it, cleanest trade. It has been among the major it has been among the major currencies. Um now. What will end the dollar rally is a perception that things are settling down. That would mean no recession or the end of a recession. Well, we're not there. We're talking about the Bank of England saying, we're already so sure there's going to be a recession. We're going to tell you there's going to be one in all of 23. We've talked here that when the labor market rolls over and then we see that the, mar the economy is in trouble, a massive inverted yield curve from the Fed's response or from the market's response that's not going to help people say, oh, now's the time that I got to switch out of U.S. dollars into emerging market currencies um, or something. So the dollar is going to stay a problem um, right now. Maybe they could try a plaza or cord two or something where they try to put a global cap on the dollar. That one's going to be really difficult, I think, because, again, the plaza cord was, was, um, was 1985. The economy was not as hyper financialized as it is right now. If you're going to try and have global governments cap the movement of the dollar, there's a lot of big trillion dollar plus trading houses that may not want to go along with that and might want to push them on it. And so it may not work. It was a lot easier for it to work in 85. Look, 85 was 13 years after we got rid of fixed currencies anyway. So a lot of people that worked in trading houses were around when we were living under fixed rated regimes. But we're not, we're, we're, you know, we're not there. But I, so I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, I don't know, but I do agree that this is a problem. Because even if it's not this cycle, even if it's not this cycle, if we've got another cycle, you know, the next recession, suddenly the dollar's at 140, 150. I mean, that's, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, and if you go back, if you go back and look at the charts of the dollar index or the individual currencies uh, uh, like the pound and stuff, you know, from 1983 to 1985, that was a gigantic move in the dollar then at that point. Um, and so but now you've really hyped because, again, we're hyper financialized. Step one. Get into the safest asset, that's the dollar. Step two, figure out the world. And I think we're all on step one right now. No one wants to transfer their money 
out of the U.S. and buy frontier markets or even step in? Does anybody want to put their money in the yen right now with their yield curve control and what they've, what's been going on with the yen? The, the, the day we're recording, the pound just hit 112. Does anybody want to step up and try and buy the pound yeah, and the, at 112? And, and the Chinese yuan is now going as well. You know, if, if that starts going through 720 or so, okay, that's... But this is another thing that I'm thinking about is, <clears throat> I'm thinking through is the world's largest export nations, Germany, Japan, China, are now undergoing a pretty extensive currency deval, which means that prices in the US... They can't, you know, they'll be importing deflation from these countries, which is good for the Fed, I guess. They're probably quite happy right. to see it. But that's what I feel like. If the exporters are all seeing really big currency devaluations, then it's probably good for global inflation. I brings it down. Yes. And I'm coming full circle back to what I was talking about, the end of cheap labor, cheap goods and cheap energy. If you have global deflation because of a strong dollar and you have technology, that's why I think that this 9% or 8% inflation is still an echo of the reopening. It settles out. I still think it settles out at around three, four, four and a half, not settles out at six, seven, or eight. No. And that that is a, that, but still three, four, four and a half is a problem because that means that, as you said, the, the one and a half percent fair value on bonds. If I'm right on inflation and it settles out there, that fair value is going to have to be much higher. Um, yeah, but we'll or, have to or see they how run this negative plays real out. rates, which is kind of what's in my head. But again, I don't know. We need to see what the world looks like then. Yeah, the problem with negative real rates is that's stimulative, and that keeps that inflation rate high uh, at that point. So there's a lot of cross currents in this market. But coming back full circle, it's a po my view. It's a post pandemic economy. It is. Don't confuse this with 2019. It is different. Things changed because of that massive shutdown, reopening. Societally and sociologically, we changed a lot of people's attitudes, beliefs, the way they conduct their lives. And we still need to try and understand that and adjust. And the problem is, going all the way back to our earlier conversation, in 1947, everybody knew they weren't going back to making Sherman tanks. But in 2022, their people have to let go of this idea 2019 is going to return. It's a different economy moving forward. Different does not mean dystopian. It's just, it, 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 it will present lots of opportunities for people, but it's just not going to be the same as it was. Yeah. Um, and I share that this is very similar to the post-war period. There'll be differences, of course. You know, that post-war period was interesting because the market fell and then it bounced and then took out the low didn't really go much lower, but it went back up again. Went. To, it took several years. Yuri and Timmerman's been Timmer's been talking about the same thing. It's like it took a long time to recover. The market didn't go anywhere. It just got cheaper because you know the economy was okay after the re initial recession, and stocks traded sideways for a bit, but stayed near the lows. And like I said before, um, a bear market is time. And, you know, if you're in your 20s, so what? But if you're 67 years old and you're told, oh, don't worry, the stock market will trade sideways for eight years and then it'll have another big rally. Eh, I don't have that kind of time to wait. And that's why the boomers are really going to start to panic if they start to think that, you know, the stock market's got many years of sideways action. Do they sell when, or do they stop spending? I think they stop spending at, at this point. I mean, yeah. what are they, they might sell a little bit and try and, 
move into, into this what? new novel concept. Well, I was going to say, we've got this new novel concept. We have bonds with an actual coupon. You know, they yeah. can buy some of those. Uh, you know, hey, look at this. There's a four handle on this bond. What's that? Uh, they could maybe try and play a little bit of that. But I think it's more about stop spending um, because yeah. that they, they're still going in. Their retirement, everybody's retirement is predicated on this idea that these assets are going to keep going up in price. If you sell, other than maybe getting some bonds, you're kind of giving up on that. You're trying to say, here's my money, and this is the pool I've got, and They're I've not, got to stretch it out. Give, the, the Europeans did that almost by mandate, and they didn't own stocks. The US will never give up on that dream. So they will ride right. this thing out. So you're right, they have to stop spending, which lowers trend rate of growth coming out of the recession, because if stocks don't recover in a V-shape, which they're unlikely to, then... They, these people are not going to spend. So it's right. I mean, the only way you could times, right? fascinating. Yeah. The only way you could see a V-shape coming is if the economy crashes so bad that you get some kind of a mini 2020 response, smash rates down. You, 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 you wind up maybe even undoing QT, maybe introduce QE that even if you have a divided Congress, they all come together and pass fiscal spending packages because they're so scared of what's happening in the economy. Maybe you see a liquidity V bottom on at that, but first it's got to get really bad in yeah. order to really start making that argument. Jim, epic conversation. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our best of 2022 series than with Jim Bianco. It's clear why he's a Real Vision fan favorite. So let's get to the key takeaways from this interview. Just looking at my notes, Rao and Jim agree on plenty of things when it comes to the U.S. economy, but obviously inflation is not one of them. Now, in Jim's view, the Fed will do all it can to crush inflation, but it will probably settle higher around 4 or 5% in Jim's view. Now, a big part of this has to do with what Jim calls a period of epic change, similar to what happened after World War II. In his his view, COVID-19 has completely changed the economy, especially the onset of remote working. But what he thinks is that people really haven't recognized this yet, and therefore there's no major push to restructure yet. But the loss of cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy mean that this is coming in his book. Because of his view, he thinks that neutral interest rates will settle around 3%, and compared to zero, that's a major adjustment for financial markets and for the economy. Jim thought there was still more downside for U.S. equities and that the dollar would continue to rally, but did point out there would be opportunities in the future once everyone agreed we are living in a brand new economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.